All right, we are, I'm so glad that you guys are here today. As you can see, I am not Weston. <laughs> Weston is out with his family, and uh, so I get the privilege of delivering our message today and helping orchestrate portions of our, our, of our service. So I'm happy that you're here. Um, this text was a lot of fun to go through uh, in many ways over the last year and a half or so. I've really spent most of my time just reading scripture, and it's been very fruitful, and it's very, been very enjoyable, and so I haven't spent a whole lot of time really diving in and studying to the extent that I would do when I deliver a message like this, and so it was very fun. It was a lot of just fascinating things that really jump out to you, and at first read, this text was just kind of not general, but, but general. It didn't have any of those big classics that you see in the book of John. Um, but as I began to dive through it and read it, it was such a beautiful text. I hope that you'll see the beauty in the scripture today. So let us start by reading our scripture this morning. We're in the book of John, chapter 7, 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? When he has never studied. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is the word of the Lord. So we're continuing our journey today through John. And as I mentioned earlier, I have thoroughly enjoyed studying this passage. And and it's been exciting just to see these scriptures dance right before me. You guys ever see that when you're reading through scripture? Like these just revelations and things are just, gosh, it's so exciting. And so to be intimate with the text where you can just feel the emotion that's coming out. It's exciting. Something has been has, has clear to me, which is evident in today's passage, and it's, it's these precise calculations that you see in the work of Jesus. His timing is always spot on. You see that he moves from town to town and he, he evades the people and on and on. I frequently point out examples in our world to our kids just just to kind of show how mathematical calculations make up our everyday life and a large portion of it. I'm not really sure why I started doing that. I I think originally it started with um, my frustration with like the the traffic lights and they weren't programmed to my liking. And so it sends me on this like tangent in the car with the kids about traffic engineering and how we should always hit the green light if we go this speed and yada, yada, yada. But um, am I the only one that does that? (laughs) I was speaking with another one of our members a while back and he mentioned this article that he had read that if we could precisely determine all the variables of a situation, then we could predict with mathematical accuracy specific events, like car wrecks and and things that are all around. But but the key there is if we could know all the variables, right? So in theory, this would work, but in reality, it can't because we are a broken people. We have a finite mind. Only God knows all the variables. But we want it that way. We we don't want to know all the variables. And, and so we see how Jesus carries out God's will through these pages, through, these, through this text. And it's a beautiful thing as we see God's plan just unfolding even in our story today. So just to recap some of the things that we've been talking about, um, Jesus has been living out his ministry. And John is telling this story following the will of God the Father by teaching in the synagogues. He's been going around teaching. He's been feeding the masses. He's been healing the sick, which specifically includes healing a man on the Sabbath, which we see Jesus make a reference to in our text today. The people all around are beginning to wonder if this man really is the Messiah. Is is this person from God? As we have continued, you can feel this just tension with the Jewish, Jewish leaders who, who want to kill Jesus. But Jesus knows the calculation. He, he understands his time is coming, but continues to, again, successfully avoid this confrontation so as to keep at bay an early triumphal entry. 
So today in our passage, we again see this heightened tension among the Jewish leaders and Jesus. The previous two weeks, we saw Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, tell the crowds um, that they believed simply because they had their fill. And that's why they continue to seek him. That is, they're seeking that self-gain, that self-gratification. But Jesus knows the heart of men. Jesus then tells them that he is the bread of life, and they must eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to find eternal life and not die. Many of his disciples, when he said this, they turned from him. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can follow this? We know that Jesus did not mean this in a literal sense, but in a spiritual sense, the spiritual awakening. So this is evidence that, that one can have a form of belief that isn't a new birth type of belief. Remember earlier in John, uh, in the interaction with Nicodemus, we, we talk about the new birth and, and how one must, uh, how God must intervene to awaken you spiritually through the new birth. That is, becoming a new creation by the work of God and the work of Christ. So if you're wondering how this can be, that someone could have some form of belief, but then fall away from grace, I would say perhaps they've never fully experienced that grace. Because when you fully experience that grace of God, it is irresistible. And it just hasn't been granted to them to understand. So in many ways, I always go back to the parable of the sower when we talk about this idea of people having a superficial belief. I think it really puts a bow on that topic. And so if you remember that parable, it talks about seed being scattered. And we have seed that fell on the path that immediately the enemy came and snatched it, and they did not believe. We have the seed which fell on rocky soil, where those who heard the word at once received it with joy, but since they had no root, they last only a short time. Then we have that seed that fell among the thorns, which refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, making it unfruitful. And then lastly, the seed that falls on the good soil is someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who has been born again. So all throughout John, we see this believing that isn't true belief. People follow because they ate their fill or they marveled at the miracles being performed. They were not willing to truly pick up their cross and follow Jesus. They wanted to be mesmerized. They wanted their physical needs to be met. Last week, we, we saw Jesus interacting with the 12 who appear to have a genuine belief is they're, they're still around after all these other disciples have left after this, this hard teaching of drink my blood and eat my flesh. And in that moment, he explains what he meant by that. We also see this introduction um, of the tw- to the 12 of, Jesus, of, of Judas being um, a devil among them. He's going to betray Jesus. And so we see this tension continuing to rise, to, to increase as we move towards Jesus' arrest and, and his work on the cross. So today we pick up with this tension still on the rise with Jesus' arrest nearing. But look at the story 
As we read through this, this scripture, you can see those methodical moves of Jesus as he interacts with his brothers and strategically plans to go up to the Feast of Booths. And notice how one of the chief themes of today's text is people judging by appearances. Verse 24, it says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. This is a cap on everything he just talks about. That's why he ended with that. And we're going to walk through some of that today. So all throughout our text today, it shows judgment by appearances. And guys, we, we are guilty of this, right? We do this. We judge a book by its cover. You know the cliche. Remember, the world judges by outward appearances, but God, God judges by inward appearances. That is, God, when, when he looks at us, what does he see? Does he see Christ's righteousness imputed to us when he looks within our hearts? If you are truly born again, he does. He sees Christ in you as the purpose of the cross. If you are doing the will of the Father, then your motives are pure. So I want to begin by walking through our text. We'll just go sections at a time, and I'll just kind of talk through some of this interaction. I'm going to back up our slides here just a bit, and we're going to look at one through five. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus is going about in Galilee, but again, you see he is strategically avoiding Judea. But this is only momentarily because he knew that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Again, we see this calculated effort. The Feast of Booths was happening. And so just a quick, quick overview here of what the, the Feast of Booths was. Is it, it was in September or October. It's called the Feast of Booths because people lived in these, in these leafy shelters, booths, to remember God's faithfulness to Israel during her wilderness wanderings. Um, it was also a time of celebration and thanksgiving for the harvest. So this was a feast that thousands and thousands of people likely attended. Jewish pilgrims from all over would be coming to take part in this event. So you can imagine the crowd that was coming to gather during this time. So that helps, gives us some context as to why Jesus' brothers said what they did here. These verses show that even Jesus' half-brothers did not believe in him, not in the new birth sense that we talked about earlier. But perhaps in a superficial way, we saw in previous portions of John. His brothers are, are essentially looking at him and saying, bro, you got thousands of people in Judea at this feast. Just imagine the public impact that you will have. Get up there and do your miracles. Go show yourself to everyone how great you are. His brothers are judging by appearances. They see an opportunity. But Jesus is not here to bring glory to himself. 
but to do the will of the Father. And in this moment, it was not for Jesus to go to the feast as his brothers had said. The brothers are essentially projecting onto Jesus what they themselves would do in this situation, seeking their own self-glory, their own self-gratification. They're, they're looking through a worldly lens, not the will of the Father. And moving on into 6 through 9, Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained in Galilee. So here we see Jesus saying that his time has not yet come. This is likely a reference to the cross. However, um, some commentators take this to mean that just his time to go up to the feast has not come. And, and, and we can tell by the following context of the scripture that, um, that that interpretation does have merit in this situation because contextually we see he does indeed go up to the feast. But Jesus does wait for a, a later time to go. He says, the brothers, you are free to go up to the feast at any time they want, but, but Jesus, he is under special constraint. His calculations are driven by doing what? The will of the Father. Jesus knew the Jews wanted to kill him, so obviously there's something very important in Jesus' timing to go and attend this feast, but also to attend privately at first. Perhaps by doing that, he is able to get a feel for the crowd. You, you remember in our text here, and I think it's up here, we'll get to it in a second. He hears the murmurs and, and the rumors that are circulating around about him, potentially as he's there in private. Listen to what, and what Jesus tells his brothers, that the world cannot hate you because you are of the world. Perhaps a religious version of the world but when the world looks at these brothers, they see, they see an appearance of themselves. The world's sin is not revealed when, when they look at the brothers. But Jesus said, says the world hates him because, because he uncovers their sin, their wrongdoing, their evil works. He looks into the, into the heart, and, and the world is convicted because the world hates it hates to see their own wrongdoing. So one careful note here, when Jesus says his time has not yet fully come, again, I've, reiter I've mentioned this before, is that we can also relate this to his time of not coming up to the feast. While there is that deeper meaning of the cross, there's also this contextual meaning that we pick up that I'm just not going to travel there right now at this time. This was a, a multi-day event. So this is not my time. I'm going to not go. But he does go later. So he's, he's strategically delaying. Again, we see this, just kind of these beautiful calculations. Like he knows all these variables. And now 10 through 13. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but publicly, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? 
And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now we see Jesus decide that the time is right, and he goes. He goes up to the feast, but he goes privately. Hear the chatter in these verses. So Jesus' popularity is beginning to rise And in many ways, this is the momentum his brothers were pushing him to. Take advantage of this. You could be famous. The leaders were looking for Jesus and the people were muttering about him. Some say he's a good man. Others say he's leading people astray. All parties were judging by appearances. They are frankly curious about Jesus, but they are clearly divided in their opinions. The key here is to note the stronghold that the Jewish leaders have on the people. They would not speak openly because what? They feared the repercussions of the Jews. Jesus had become a more important figure than the Jews wanted him to be. Jesus being at the feast privately would likely hear all these rumors and chatter about him. So you can feel just this tension, this tension in the room, at the feast, in the air. We're moving towards that climax of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. Moving into 14 and 15. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So we see this strategic move again with Jesus. He waits some time for the feast to be underway before he even reveals himself and begins to teach in the synagogue. And look at what the people say. How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Again, This is judging by appearances, not with godly admiration. This is judging by appearances, not with godly admiration. They're saying, how can this man teach with such authority, yet he's never gone through one of our centers of learning? He's never learned from one of our famous rabbis. He hasn't gone through our system, yet he has such command and mastery of Scripture. How can this be? They are judging by appearances. That's why they're marveled. But again, this is not with a godly admiration. As we move into 16 through 18. So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. This set of text is beautiful, so don't don't miss what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is obedient to the will 
of the Father. He does not go after his own will, but solely the will of God the Father. This is the very reason why Jesus' work is so astonishing. It is directly from God himself. He deflects self-glorification and points to God the Father and his glory through all of his efforts. Guys, how are we doing this in our own lives? How are we deflecting our own will, our own glory, and pointing people to the will of God? We have the ability through the power of the Spirit to discern the will of God and exercise that daily. What do your decisions look like on a daily basis? Am I vetting that against my will or against God's will? As you move through this life and you use God's will as that vetting piece and you're doing the will of God, guys, people are going to hate you because they hated Jesus. We are not of this world. I frequently talk to my kids about how we are citizens of heaven and, and we do things different than the world. There's, there's things we don't watch. There's things we don't participate in. There's, there's things we don't allow into our souls through the window of our soul, which is our eyes, because we are not of this world. Guys, the world, are gonna, they're going to judge us by that outward appearance. And the world is going to be convicted by you. But know that God will give you perseverance to push forward as he brings others into the fold through your efforts. Moving on in our text today, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowds answered him, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. God gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath day, I made a whole man's body well. So now we see Jesus in this transition in which he's directly addressing the Jews seeking to kill him. He is calling them out, saying that they themselves don't even keep the law. Did you catch that? Like you, you guys don't even keep the law. And yet you seek to kill me? And, and listen to what the crowd says. They push back against it and they say, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? This is a sarcastic way of saying, are, are you crazy? Like, who, who, who's out to get you? But many don't see the same way Jesus does because remember, Jesus looks at the heart. Like he knows what is in the heart of the people that is around him. So he knows what is coming. He knows the variables. Now Jesus compares his work of healing a man on the Sabbath to the work of circumcision, 
on the Sabbath. The act of circumcision in the law states that it should be done on the eighth day. So when a child is born, circumcision should occur on the eighth day. Well, if a child is born on the Sabbath, it, can, it creates a conundrum. Because the eighth day is the next Sabbath, which is <laughs> a day you shouldn't work. But yet they do work. They perform that circumcision in order that they may keep the law. But yet, yet they're breaking the law of Sabbath. And so Jesus is pointing this out. So in, in order to not break the law of Moses, they break the law of the Sabbath and they chose to circumcise the child. And, and then look at the, just the irony and the symbolism behind circumcision. It's, it's that it's viewed as a perfecting rite. It's one member of the body by this rite was perfected and in some cases took place on the Sabbath. Again, hence breaking the law. And now Jesus is performing the same type of work and perfecting an entire body. So the point here is that you Jewish leaders, even you break the law. No one can keep it. Everyone breaks it. Why are you angry with me? When, when I talk about like the scriptures dancing off the pages and like coming to life, like this is it. This is that little nugget that in there, I, I get excited. Go, Jesus. Yeah. This is full. These little nuggets are full of scripture. It's so much fun to dive into and to see God at work in the pages of scriptures, I hope that you guys experience the same thing in your, in your spiritual life, that as you read through scripture, it just dances off the pages. If, if that is not the case for you, just, just read it. Just read it, just stick it out. Put, push in, even if it's drudgery. It will not be the case because the spirit of God is, is so good to, to take your soul and mold it and shape it to transform it through its power into a new creation. And then lastly, verse 24 here says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we see this continual theme of, of judging by appearances all throughout the pages of this text. It starts with the brothers who are not true believers yet, projecting what they would do on Jesus and telling him to seize the moment, take charge, and, and make yourself known to the world. Go be famous. But, but, but Jesus says, no, like, I'm here to do the will of the Father, not, not my own will. I don't seek my own self-glory, my own self-gratification. We see the crowds of people muttering about him, judging him by the visual works he does, not by the heart having a superficial belief in Jesus because they ultimately seek their own will and own glory and not the will of the Father. The people are judging by appearances and Jesus is learning. That is his teaching. Jesus didn't sit under a Jewish rabbi to learn what he was teaching. But yet, he taught as one with authority. And this just baffled. It baffled the people. The Jewish leaders break the law of circumcision when it falls on the Sabbath, and yet they judge Jesus for healing an entire man's body on the Sabbath. Again, they are judging by appearances. 
And now Jesus says in verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Guys, what, what is right judgment? In this context, what we're talking about is moral and theological discernment in the context of obedient faith. Obedient faith. While removing and running from self-righteous legalism. That's, that's full of this. Like The Jewish people were full of just this self-righteous legalism. But walking in the will of the Father and not our own will gives us the ability to judge with godly admiration. So I want to just conclude with a few thoughts. Our personal will gets in the way of our relationship with Christ. It does, if we're being honest. What I want to do is not what I know that the Scriptures are telling me to do. I know what I need to do, but I don't do it. For us to truly know Jesus, our will must be to do God's will. Remember that the world will judge you by appearances. They will call out what they see. But if your will is to do God's will, then they will hate you. Embrace that. Prepare for that. Because their sin will be exposed. But together in unity as the church, we can persevere. We can be lights to the world without being of the world. And guys, the beauty here is that as, as you expose these sins of the world, like people are going to, they're going to take hold of that conviction. Like that's the spirit quickening them and prompting them. And, and people are going to come to know Christ through these efforts. Not everyone. But it's a beautiful thing when people see their, their sin and their darkness and they repent from that and they turn from that. So embrace that. So my prayer for each of you is that you will have an appetite for doing the will of God the Father, an appetite. Just think of that word, an appetite, a craving. Like, if I have an appetite for something, what do I got to do? I, I got I to gotta taste it to, to satisfy it so that you would taste and see that the Lord is good you would taste and see that the Lord is good. So today, church, I implore you to strive to increase your spiritual taste, to just to obey God and to seek God's glory as your ultimate satisfaction in this life. That God be your ultimate satisfaction. You know, just a little inkling of, of, of what I mean by that. It's like you, you, I talk to people occasionally and they tell me what they think heaven's going to be like. And they say, well, in heaven, I'm, I'm going to get to go do this thing that I enjoy so much. I enjoy doing this and it brings me much pleasure. Um, but the reality is, is, is like that thing, that hobby, whatever it may be, yes, it brings you pleasure, but but God is actually the ultimate satisfaction in pleasure. And so I want us to erase those thoughts that heaven's going to be like this because God is our ultimate satisfaction. And in his presence is going to bring so much more pleasure than anything that we can do here on this earth. So to increase your spiritual, spiritual taste for God's glory, for his work, for his will, 
to do this, we seek God daily. You're in his word daily. Like if you want to improve something, if you want to see, if you love to see the glory of something come to fruition, what do you do? You seek it out. You participate in it. You study it. So we pray. You spend time with others who are like-minded, not just in the walls of this building, but outside the walls as well. And your conversations in all of life have gospel undertones. Because your love for God overflows naturally in conversation with those around you. Guys, we, we won't do this to perfection. We won't. We are broken. But the world will look at you and hate you because they hated Jesus. They will constantly judge by appearances. So I just want us to stay strong together as we grow in our faith. Guys, we have like this message of Christ crucified and it is a powerful, wonderful message that goes beyond this life into all of eternity. And why would we take this treasure and keep it for ourselves? Why would we not intimately get to know it and get to know Christ and, and, and his work on the cross and, and passionately share that with our neighbors? And, and, and be careful to hear me say, I'm not saying go emotionally all the time on this high spreading the gospel Walking people through the Romans road. No, I'm talking about love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. How, how has God called you to do that? Okay, great. Go do that now. Whatever that looks like for you, for your ministry. Scripture tells us that, that we have a ministry, the ministry of the saints, You have a work that God has called you to in a context of people who desperately need to hear the gospel. And going forth, following the will of the Father, you are equipped. Whether you think you're equipped or not, you can do it. Continue to surround yourself with people here, with the gospel, with the scriptures, with prayer. Practicing spiritual disciplines, we can do this together. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful today just to be able to come and gather and, and sing these songs that sing praise to you for who you are and God for what you have done. Your work on the cross that, that sometimes we, we even forget about and the intensity of what's happening on the cross, not just the physical pain, but the spiritual implications that take place on the cross that day remind us of that daily. And God, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for allowing your scripture to be living and active to the point that it doesn't matter what we say, but as we read through Scripture, like, it awakens us. Thank you for that, Lord. 
May that be the case day in and day out as we study the scriptures, we store it in our hearts as it, it comes out in our conversations with other people that they too may be awakened to your word and to your son. It's in Christ's name we pray.